0: Scripture today is Genesis 25 19 through 26 5, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Pad and Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, the two peoples from within you from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger when her days to give birth were completed behold there were twins in her womb the first came out red all his body like a hairy cloak so they called his name esau and afterward his brother came out with his hand holding esau's heel so his name was called jacob isaac was 60 years old when she bore them when the boys grew up esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field while jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents isaac loved esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved jacob once when jacob was cooking stew esau came in from the field and he was exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and your offspring. I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give you to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments my statutes, and my laws. The word of the Lord.
1: Our scene today opens and closes with Isaac, right? The beginning of chapter 26 highlights the Abrahamic blessing. Remember, now Abraham's died and Sarah's wife, they're, they're gone. First generation is gone. Now this is second generation. We're picking up with their son Isaac and his family. Isaac is really the, the, the focus in the beginning of Genesis chapter 26 and how God's blessing upon Abraham transferred to Isaac. And God said uh, to Isaac in the beginning of Genesis 26, I'll be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. See the similar language. He had said this to Abraham decades before. God went on to say to Isaac, in your offspring... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So there's the big idea of Genesis. There's the plan of Genesis unfolding now to, the, to another generation. But Isaac's story receives a small attention in the Genesis history. You don't hear a lot about Isaac. You just kind of go past him onto his sons. Uh, chapter 25 focuses on Isaac, Isaac's and Rebekah's sons, Esau and Jacob, and actually focuses on their conflict, which really characterized much of their lives together, this conflict uh, between the two boys. And uh, we also discover in Genesis 25 how their parents contributed to the conflict. Finally, we discover, and this is the good news, that God blessed Isaac and his family despite their dysfunction. I hope you're willing to admit that all families to one degree or another, have their share of dysfunction. And this is hope for you if you've recognized that. Or maybe it's a wake-up call. Today's message is largely for parents uh, and grandparents, but I want to say today's message is also for teachers, for caregivers, anybody who works with young people. Anyone who in some way is influencing or impacting the lives of young people. People who have not yet come of age, let's say, regardless of their age. Now, some of you are decades past raising your children. Uh, so you're, you're looking back into history when you think about raising your kids. But maybe in some ways uh, there's still a sting in your heart. where uh, maybe your mind in certain ways is still troubled when you look back and consider uh, your own failings and weaknesses As parents, Uh, some of you haven't yet begun or or you're just getting started. So take notes today and you can pull them out for the rainy days of parenting later in your life. Uh, Some of you like like Becky and me are kind of in the middle. You are wrestling with parenthood and the world and you're depleting youth and energy and the brilliance that you think you have. What I want to say to everybody, though, is that God's sovereign grace, his sovereign grace covers all of your sins, all of our sins and weaknesses and mistakes and shortcomings as parents and as teachers and as caregivers. The grace of God is sufficient to cover it all. The sovereign grace of God. And today I want to discuss our will, our intentions, our purposes in parenting. And in guiding young people. I also want to talk about God's will. God's purposes in your parenting. And finally I want to talk about the will of Jesus Christ. And why that matters. As we train up and raise the next generations. Our will in parenting. God's will in parenting. And the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the will of parents is mixed with honorable motives And dysfunctional motives. You see this right here in the story. In Genesis chapter 25. Uh, You get mixed reviews. When you consider Isaac's and Rebecca's record. As parents. There are honorable aspects. To the job that they do as parents. For instance if you look in chapter 25. Verse 21. It says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Because she was barren. Now remember Isaac was 40 years old. When they got married. It says in verse 26. That Isaac was 60 years old. When, when Rebecca gave birth to the twin boys. So that's 20 years. Isaac prayed. For two decades. For his wife. Two decades. So what you see that's admirable in Isaac. Is he became a man of prayer. But more importantly. He became a man of patient prayer. The prayer is coupled with the patience. That's the big part that we sometimes miss in our prayers, is the patience that must accompany prayer. And you see them both in the witness of Isaac as a husband and as a father. So that's a very good thing. Furthermore, look at Rebecca. Uh, she conceives after two decades. Uh, she's pregnant with, with twins, and, and her body has gone amok. There is all chaos in her womb, and, and she's distraught. And anxious about it, so it says she goes to the Lord. She inquires of the Lord. She wants to understand from God what is happening to me, which I think is very significant. Rebecca sought discernment from the will of God. She didn't just seek discernment about what was happening through the culture uh, and through her friends and even through her family. Her ultimate decision was whatever is going on in me, whatever is troubling me, I must seek the word of God. So here's a, here is a couple uh, that is p- praying patiently and seeking God's perspective for discernment as they interpret what's happening to them, what's happening to their family. And I think those, those attributes, those characteristics as parents is commendable. There was something dysfunctional about their parenting. I'll come back to it, though. Let me just talk about their boys for a little bit. Jacob and Esau could not be more different, right? Right? As you look at at how the author of Genesis, Bill... This is character development for later on in the story. What do we discover in in chapter 25, verses 25 and 26? That the first came out red. Esau came out red. By the way, Esau sounds like the Hebrew word for red. His nickname was Edom. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Esau sounds like the word for hairy. Edom sounds like the word for red. So, So hairy and red... That, those, those names are very intentional, and we'll keep going. The first came out red, although his, his, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob sounds like the word for, for grasping after something, to supplant somebody else. To go behind somebody else's back. So here you have their description. And, and, and they grew up. And in, and in verse 27 we're told. When the boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter. A man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man. Dwelling in tents. You get, you get the, the idea that Esau was a man's man. Like Esau was rugged. He was free. And, and, and however he was crude. And he was impulsive. He was rash and passionate. And ultimately, that's where he gets the nickname, Red. Jacob, on the other hand, I gotta say, Jacob's kind of like a mama's boy. It it says that he's hanging around near tents. It probably didn't mean he did nothing. The tent life was the life of a Bedouin shepherd. So you get the sense that that Jacob is, is, is really kind of following in the family's uh, agrarian footsteps Esau is out kind of forging his own way hunter a uh, man of the field Jacob is kind of sticking with the family way he's he's loyal he's faithful he's he's staying close to home but it also says that he was a quiet man that doesn't mean he didn't talk uh, the Hebrew word means more something something like this cultured refined so Esau was rugged and free and independent, and Jacob was faithful, and introspective, and cultured, but Jacob was shrewd, and Jacob was ambitious, and you see these differences highlighted. At the first point, you see these differences highlighted over the situation with the birthright. As you keep reading in the in the coming chapters, you're going to see how how their personalities exasperate. Uh, the competitive nature and the conflict between the two of them. But right now, the first instance is the issue of the birthright. So the birthright was, in that culture, the oldest son's right and privilege by order of birth to inherit a double share, a double portion twice as much as every other son in the family would inherit. So all the sons in the family would get an equal share, but the firstborn would get twice that share. Now, what happens... When you only have two sons. According to that rule, it means the older son gets everything and the younger son gets nothing. So you can understand why Jacob is plotting in a manipulative way to get that birthright. The birthright is not just a perk, though, in that culture. The birthright was a burden. The birthright meant. That you had to be loyal and faithful. You had to guard and protect and lead the clan. It means you couldn't go off on your own. And just do your own thing. Your inheritance was tied with the land and with the family. And you had to be the stable one. And so given Esau's personality you can see why he wasn't very interested in keeping the birthright. Because it meant he had to remain accountable and faithful and consistent and responsible. So uh, Esau is out in the field. He comes back in. And he's exhausted. There's his brother. Now look. These are wealthy boys. Who, who uh, Isaac is even more wealthy. And, and, and more prosperous now than his father Jacob. Uh, these boys don't have to cook their own food. They're, why is Jacob cooking food for his brother Esau? He knows exactly what he's about to do. So Esau comes in from the field. He's exhausted. He's famished. He thinks he's going to die of hunger. And Jacob is there with a nice bowl of stew ready to go. And Esau says to him in verse 30, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Now, the original Hebrew is more coarse and basic than that. It goes something like this, according to one scholar. Esau said, let me gulp some of that red stuff. This red stuff. It's like caveman talk. He's he's exhausted. He's he's a bull in a china closet type of a guy. He's a get in, sit down, eat, get up, leave type of a guy. He comes in family. He says, come on, give me some of that stuff. I'm going to die. And his younger brother goes, hey, sure, sell me your birthright. So the birthright was transferable. The status could transfer from one child to the next. And right then and there, Esau says, are you kidding me? Who cares about a birthright? I'm going to die. Would you feed me already? Swear to me now, swear to me now, Jacob gets his older brother to enact an oath. This is is an unbreakable oath. So there, right there, right there. Esau, because he was impulsive, rejected the promise of God upon that family for a bowl of stew. Jacob was manipulative. And contriving. See, Jacob gets the blessing, and Jacob is turns out to be the heir of Isaac and Abraham. But Jacob isn't really painted. It's not like Jacob gets that status because he's he's an up he's an upright guy. However, what you see in Jacob is mixed. He's manipulative, but he realizes the promise is important. Right? So by faith, Jacob can see what Esau can't—that God's blessings are tied to this family. And I need to be a part of it. He's sinful and corrupt in the way he goes about to get the blessing. So you see a mixture of sin and faithfulness right there in Jacob. What was dysfunctional about how Isaac and Rebekah handled the situation was this. And you see it in verse 28. Here's their dysfunction as parents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game but Rebecca loved Jacob. Favoritism. They played their favorites. Look, you know this. Every child is different. Every I don't care if you have ten or six or two. Every child, whether you're teaching them or raising them, or just taking care of them for 45 minutes in the back room over there every Sunday, every child is different, right? Here's the thing. Isaac and Rebecca, their, their dysfunction was in how... They responded to the differences. Rebecca, keep reading the story. Rebecca would become ambitious for Jacob. Just like Jacob was ambitious, Rebecca would become ambitious for her son. And through her scheming and through her advice, she would further drive a wedge between the two boys. Isaac was blind. Not only literally. You'll see he becomes an old blind man. But he's he's not only biologically blind but Isaac becomes spiritually blind to his oldest son's faults so that he cannot see what kind of a man Esau is becoming and he cannot see that Esau is essentially unworthy and unwilling to take the blessing of God and move it forward to the next generation so the will of each individual parent further complicated the conflict of their two boys. But the will of God is not compromised by imperfect parenting. We find out in verse 23 when, when Rebecca is distraught over the, the tumult that's taking place within her womb. And she, she reaches out to God and says, what is happening to me? God's response was this. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger and i think that's really important because what we discover is that before the boys lives began before they took their first breath before they were conceived god in eternity had inverted the expectations the cultural expectations the expectations of the family and of their parents god had inverted all of it and turned it upside down and the apostle paul commented on this situation in romans chapter 9 where he said rebecca when rebecca had conceived children by one man our forefather isaac though they were not yet born and had not done i'm sorry and had done nothing either good or bad in order to that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And then later on in Romans 9, Paul interprets that theologically for us by saying, so then it depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So it depends then not upon human will or exertion. That applies to the parents and to the children. It depends not upon human will and exertion, but upon God who has mercy. The scholar Gerhardus Voss said that this entire account is all about God's grace overcoming human sin. The sins of the parents and the sins of the children. And for a Christian, if you follow the God of the Bible by faith, uh, this ought to be an extremely comforting and guiding concept. That our children's lives were ordained by God before they ever took their first breath. That your mistakes as parents cannot undo the plan of God. That your mistakes as parents and caregivers and teachers cannot thwart God's grace and mercy that he intends for his people. Now, as parents or as caregivers, you know, anybody working with kids, um, we ought to account for the sovereignty of God in our parenting. And from what I've observed by watching older parents, your kids are always going to be your kids, right? Even when they grow up and get jobs and start having children of their own, you're still going to be their parents, So this is still important, to account for the sovereignty, the immutable sovereignty of God in the world and in the lives of our children and the grace of God that covers over their mistakes and ours as well. You cannot dictate or control your children's temperament. Their personality is is out of your control. Who they are is not up to you. Now, you have an influence over them, but their temperament, their gifts, their affinities, their weaknesses, out of your control. Actually, the way sin, the way original sin, as the Bible describes it, has a particular manifestation in the life of an individual child, how, how sin manifests itself in a particular child and begins to develop and grow as the child grows, that also, to a great degree... Is out of your control. All of these things. Good and the bad. Have according to the Bible. According to Paul. And according to the author of Genesis. Are ordained. By the unsearchable wisdom of God. Where we as parents. Have to apply a lot of prayer. And and a lot of patience. And, And where we as parents. Have to walk by faith. Is in how we respond. To all of these things. That is you. You do own that. I do own. How I respond. To my children. The good things that happen. The bad things that happen. Our children's strengths and weaknesses. The opportunities. That our children have in this life. And in this culture. The threats. That they face. And their sin. Faith is about responding. Responding to these issues in a way that honors the God of the Bible. For instance, just imagine that your child, just imagine that your child has an insatiable desire for attention. Not everybody's that way, but some people are. Imagine you've got a kid with an insatiable desire for attention. That's probably a combination of their socialization, you know, their, inf- their, their external influences, yeah, some of it's caught, right? Based on what's happened to them, uh, they seek attention, but it's not all based on socialization. Some of that is just inherently a part of who they are, as as children, as human beings who are born, as David said in Psalm, one, in, in Psalm fifty-two born in sin, conceived in sin, conceived as image bearers of the creator, but with the capacity to reject the creator's wisdom and love and goodness. So that insatiable desire for attention is somewhat due to their socialization and somewhat due to just who they are as fallen people born into a fallen world as sinners. But here's the thing. You must not encourage that insatiable desire for attention like Rebecca did with Jacob, you must not encourage that thing that you see in your child. You must not, like Isaac, on the other hand, be blind to it. You must not be blind to your child's weakness, and so ignore it. Rather, we have to help our children, or a particular child like that, to see that they're always loved, but that they're never going to be worshipped. And we have to strike that balance. That's just one particular area. Will you parent your children? Will we guide the next generations by God's wisdom? With God's wisdom. Like when Rebecca said, Lord, what I want to hear from you. I want discernment from your truth. What's happening to me and my family? Are we going to parent our children and guide our young people by God's wisdom instead of our own? Whose image are you molding? Your children into. Proverbs chapter 3. Tells us uh, to. Trust in the Lord. With all our heart. To lean not. On our own understanding. Right but to acknowledge him in our ways. So that he would direct our paths in a straight way. But when we lean on our own understanding. And let's apply it to parenting. And and to child rearing. And to child care. And to teaching. When we lean on our own understanding. Understanding to guide children, we, we show a disrespect to their Creator, their Creator who created them in His image. When people see the children that you've impacted in your life, will they see God's handiwork? Or will they see your tiny little fingerprints? Because you've been trying to fashion and mold. That human being into a version of yourself, another version of yourself, Brian 2.0. Yeah, what are they going to see? Are they going to see when they look at that person that you've that you've greatly influenced? Are they going to see the handiwork of God, or are they going to see your dirty little fingerprints because you tried to make that human being created in the image of God that you've only been given as a steward, not as an owner? Will they see your little fingerprints? The reality is, and I think some of you know this, both. (laughs) People are going to see the work of God in the next generation. And people are going to see your grubby little fingerprints on the next generation. It's going to be both. And I hope you see that. But the will of Jesus Christ is to mold people into his image. Jesus says, you know what? They're mine. They're mine just like you are mine. And I'm going to mold them. Despite your mistakes, despite your weaknesses, despite your blindness to what you've done and to what they're like, I'm going to mow them into my image. Romans, again, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. By the way, Paul had written this after an entire section where he said that anyone who follows Christ is a child of God, is an heir of God of God's estate, of God's inheritance, and that the Spirit of Christ indwelling you convinces you that you're not an orphan, but a child of your Creator. So, after you know, against that backdrop, Paul went on to say, For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, he also predestined to, listen to this, be conformed to the image of his son. Not you, not me, but to the image of his son. In order that he, meaning Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he, he, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see those words there? That Jesus is, is the firstborn amongst new people, that, that, that means that Jesus is forming a new humanity. Jesus was a, the first of a new kind of human being when he rose from the dead. He's the first of a new kind of human being. Jesus was the first, and there are going to be a countless many just like him, cre- recreated in his image, not in our image. A new creation, a new humanity, reformed in his image. And these, this is what these people are going to look like. People like Jesus, whose sins were crushed on the cross. Whose sins were hung and judged on a Roman cross and are remembered no more and are forgiven and forgotten. People like Jesus who will live forever. Who are being remade, who are being refashioned, who are being reformed who start thinking differently and doing differently and speaking and saying differently. People who who start to create and build and plan and and disagree in a new way. Not formed any longer after how you and I have taught them to do all these things, but reformed according to the principles and priorities of the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we we are just... We are trying to help the next generation see that we ourselves are being reformed into this new humanity that looks nothing like us, but everything like Jesus Christ. Rosemary Miller, in her book, The Gospel-Centered Parent, said that Jesus builds his kingdom with the poor and the needy, not with good people or good children but with those who know they need a savior. It's not about well-behaved kids. It's not about successful kids. It's not about students who, uh, who, who do better than anyone else's students on the park exams. It's about broken parents and broken children saying, we're sinners, we're imperfect. We're like Jacob or we're like Esau, and the grace of God is covering over our sins. So here's where we have to start. We have to start with ourselves. We have to say, I receive the grace of God. As a parent, I receive the grace of God that forgives me for my imperfect parenting. I receive the grace of God that covers my sins as a selfish caregiver or a blind caregiver. I accept the grace of God that covers my sins. And we have to trust in the sovereignty of God to direct our children's steps according to His plan. Our grandchildren's steps, our students' steps. We must receive the grace of God for our sin. And we must trust in the sovereignty of God to handle the situations that are out of our control. The grace of God, the sovereign. Immutable grace of God covers our sins as parents and caregivers, and so we trust in him and Our great calling as parents and teachers and caregivers is to reflect god 's heart that's that's that 's what that 's the principle that guides everything else the teaching disciplining um, all all of that it the foundation is we get to reflect the heart of God, which means. We have to teach our children what grace looks like, what mercy. We still have to discipline, but they have to experience grace and mercy within the discipline. We have to become, as Rosemary and her friends say in the gospel-centered parent, the primary confessor of sin in our home. We, that our children, have, the next generation, has to see us not blind like Isaac, but eyes wide open to our imperfections. That's our great calling, to reflect the heart of God, which is the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. And allow the Lord Jesus to fashion them in his image. And to repent of trying to mold our children after our own image. Do you believe in the grace of God that it is sufficient to cover your mistakes Do you believe in the sovereignty of God that it is capable to protect your children despite your mistakes and despite what happens to them out in the real world? If you don't, say to the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we are kind of dismantled and... Uh, befuddled as, as we look at a young man like Jacob, a, a scheming, manipulative uh, upstart, and, and see that he became the bearer of the promise. Uh, that is remarkable to us because we clearly see he didn't really deserve it. And yet, Father, we do see a ray of hope that somehow he ultimately trusted that your blessings we're tied to your word. So as imperfect caregivers and teachers and parents and grandparents. As imperfect friends and Christians. We ask that you would give us the simple faith. To put more stock. Uh, to put more trust in your wisdom than in our own. Uh, Father help us to be patient and non-judgmental. As we watch other people raise and teach their children. Help us to keep our eyes focused on uh, confessing and repenting of our own backwards ways. Uh, Give us eyes to see our own brokenness. And Father, we ask for this church that you would give us the ability uh, to parent and to shepherd and to teach with grace. Um, I ask, Father, that you would do something in our young people, that you would help them. I hope they've been paying attention to this entire thing because it's just as important to them. But I pray that you would give our young people eyes of faith to see past our weaknesses that they would still see Christ in us and around us as we serve, as we live, as we work, as we worship, and as we relate to each other in all things. Father, would you do in your grace and sovereignty what we cannot do as fallen people? Would you raise up the next generation of those who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? In his name, amen.